Everybody, good evening. Let's open up our Bibles, if you will, to Ecclesiastes chapter 5. Ecclesiastes chapter 5, as I got to thinking about that song we just sang, He is in our midst. Really, what a very appropriate song to sing as we get ready to read these verses here at the top of the chapter in Ecclesiastes chapter 5. Some verses that will help set the stage for our study tonight. And tonight is Question and Answers Night. Get an opportunity once a month to entertain some questions that have been submitted by usually by folks here at Lakeside, and that is the case for two of the questions tonight, but actually one of our questions tonight comes from outside of these four walls, and these questions are from very sincere individuals, I am convinced, and we need to give them our full attention here momentarily. It is great to see everybody this evening. I hope that you've had a good and pleasant afternoon, whether you got to spend some time with your family, or maybe you spent the afternoon resting, or hunting eggs or eating your kids' chocolate or whatever you did. I hope that you've had a good day, and I hope that you're ready now to focus on the Word of God. It is Ecclesiastes chapter 5. Read with me, if you will, in verses 1 and 2. There the wise man says in Ecclesiastes 5, beginning in verse 1, Guard your steps when you go to the house of God. To draw near to listen is better than to offer the sacrifice of fools, for they do not know that they are doing evil. Be not rash with your mouth, nor let your heart be hasty to utter a word before God, for God is in heaven and you are on earth. Therefore, let your words be few. There's a lot that could be said about that passage, but that passage does say some things about being careful, doesn't it? Particularly whenever we come before God in worship, when we come to the house of God, verse 1 talks about. That we're to be careful whenever we approach the Lord in the things that we do. And then specifically verse 2 talks about being careful with how we approach the Lord in the things even that we say. And that actually is the focus of tonight's Q&A. As I've got three questions that all center around what it is that we say whenever we come into this assembly, we come before God. He is in our midst whenever we come into this place to worship Him. Because we certainly don't want to be rash or hasty or careless, and we certainly don't want to say something to God that's just foolish and off the wall and maybe just flat out wrong, do we? Of course not. And that is why I really do appreciate the sincerity of the three questions we're going to discuss this evening, because it shows that these people are paying attention to what we're doing. And they want to make sure that the words we say, the terms that we use, the things that we employ in our language, that they are appropriate, that they are scriptural, and that they are pleasing to the Lord. And so with that in mind, let's just get right to it. Let's work on this first question, which has to do with a phrase that is commonly used whenever we come together to observe the Lord's Supper. The question is this. Is it appropriate for us to use the expression broken body at the Lord's table? Sometimes that expression gets used either by maybe the man who's presiding at the table and he's making some comments before we observe the supper. Or maybe that term will be used whenever the brother is maybe offering the prayer for the bread. Lord, we thank you for this bread which represents Christ's broken body. Is that appropriate for us to say that? Is Is that okay? And if you're sitting here this evening and you're wondering, well, why wouldn't it be? Well, there's a reason this question was asked. And that's because of what's said in John 19. Would you find John 19, please? In John 19, here is John's account of the crucifixion of Jesus. And as he is dying there on the cross, the soldiers come up 
And they are going to break the legs of the criminals who were crucified on either side of Jesus in an effort to get them to die faster. It really was an act of mercy to break someone's legs while they were being crucified. However, we are told in verse 33 of John chapter 19, it said, but when they came to Jesus and they saw that he was already dead, they did not break his legs. Verse 34, but one of the soldiers pierced his side with a spear and at once there came out blood and water. He who saw it is born witness, his testimony is true, and he knows that he's telling the truth, that you also may believe. Verse 36, for these things took place that the scripture might be fulfilled. Not one of his bones will be broken. I want to just start tonight with this question. I want to just start with this fundamental understanding. None of Jesus' bones were broken. Not a single one. And that's important. Part of the reason that that's important is because that's, that's a fulfillment of Old Testament prophecy. The quotation that's given there in verse 36 is taken from Psalm, the 34th chapter. It's also part of the imagery of the Passover lamb. Did you know that? The Israelites were commanded not to break the legs of the Passover lamb every year when they observed the Passover. And so we need to understand very clearly that none of Jesus' bones, legs or otherwise, none of His bones were broken. And if you ever hear or if you ever use this expression about Christ's broken body, and in your mind what you're thinking of is you're thinking, oh man, Jesus' bones were all broken, and boy, He just really beat Him up, breaking His legs and arms and everything else, then stop it. Stop thinking that. Because that's not true, that's not correct. That didn't happen. However, some have taken that truth, the truth that none of Jesus' bones were broken, they've taken that truth, and they have decided that this expression about Christ's broken body, they've taken that to say that, well... Well, you can't ever say that. that. That must never be uttered, either at the Lord's table or in a prayer or really in any other venue. Well, I want to say tonight that before any of us go around legislating what can and cannot be said and just decides that this idea of Jesus' broken body, that's just off limits, can I ask you to carefully consider Isaiah the 53rd chapter? Find Isaiah chapter 53 with me, if you will. Isaiah 53 is that great messianic prophecy... And of course, we actually read this passage a lot when we partake of the Lord's Supper. Either the man at the table will read it, or maybe we read it privately to ourselves. And it concerns the great suffering that Jesus would endure. It's interesting to me that Isaiah probably says more about the suffering that the Savior would endure, even more than the Gospel writers even do. And kind of gives some details about the pain that He would have inflicted upon Him and what He would endure on our account. And so in Isaiah 53, in describing the pain that Jesus would experience, the pain from His scourging and all of the other physical assaults that were done to Him, the crucifixion, everything that He went through for the sins of mankind, Isaiah 53 says in verse 4, Surely He has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed Him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. Verse 5, but he was wounded for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and with his stripes we are healed. Would you please underline in your Bibles in verse 4 that expression, smitten by God? That is a word, that is a term that means smashed, beaten, destroyed. 
It is actually related to a term that is used in the book of Chronicles, in 2 Chronicles 2 and verse 10, that talks about some bushels of crushed wheat. What's talked about there? Crushed wheat. Crushed wheat. Smitten wheat. Beaten wheat. Broken wheat. And the truth is, we use that term broken in those same kinds of ways even today, don't we? We say things like, oh, he's a broken man. She broke his heart. Oh, that just crushed him. It broke him. Now that, of course, doesn't have anything to do with the man's bones, does it? No, of course not. It has to do with the man himself, the person himself, with what happened to him, that that crushing blow that beat him down and brought him down. And that's exactly how Jesus' suffering is described. Not just here in Isaiah 53, but in Psalm 22 and a number of other messianic prophecies. That Jesus is the ultimate sufferer. He is smitten of God. He is the ultimate broken man. Broken down really in every conceivable way, with the exception of broken bones. He did all that for you and for me. And so while it is true that none of Jesus' bones were broken... I think it is fair to say, in fact, I believe it is biblical to say, that Jesus' body, in a general sense, it was broken, it was smitten, it was beaten, it was crushed. As He gave His life, He gave His body to be the atoning sacrifice for our sins. And so, to answer this first question in a single word, yes, I do think it is appropriate to say and talk about Jesus' broken body at the table or in a prayer or even just in our conversation. Now, for you, maybe you're not comfortable with that. Maybe it just kind of crosses that line about the broken bone stuff and so you're not comfortable with saying that. Well, guess what? You don't have to say it. You don't have to. That's fine. You can use some other kind of terminology. I know that whenever I've been called on to lead prayer at the Lord's table and praying for the bread, I'll pray, Lord, thank You so much that Jesus was willing to give His body and His body be treated so cruelly. There's other ways that you can say that if you're not comfortable with that. But don't go going around condemning somebody else for using that term because the Bible does say that Jesus was broken. Which then brings us to this second question this evening. And this question was submitted to me by email from someone who listens to our sermon podcast on a pretty regular basis. And they were actually prompted to ask this question after listening to some of our hymn studies. They are kind of aficionados of hymns, and so they like hearing about the hymn studies and some of the things that go into those songs. And it just kind of caught their attention, some of the things that were mentioned in some of the songs, and it prompted this question. The question was this, should we be singing hymns that use the old King James's English? I want to actually read you the complete question, and really it ended up being more of a statement than a question. The writer said, It seems that with all of the resources and hymns that we have at our disposal today, that there's not any real good reason for us to continue singing songs that are written in the King James English. Jesus didn't deliver the gospel in the King's English. Jesus delivered the gospel in everyday language. And that's certainly well, that's true. Which, of course, the language of that day would have been Koine Greek. That's the language that he would have spoke. The writer went on to say, when we sing songs that use formal terms like thee and thou and thine, it signals to others that we are stuck in tradition and we confuse that with spirituality. Since we don't speak the king's English today, why should we be using it 
in our worship? Well, let me just start answering that question by just saying, and I've been on record about this before, that I'm not the hugest fan of the King's English, Old English, if you will, namely as it pertains to the use of the Scriptures, like the King James translation of the Bible. I've often said when I'm studying like with a, somebody who's, who's just learning the gospel and, or new convert and they're just getting familiar with their Bible, I usually don't say, hey, you ought to go get you a King James Bible because sometimes all those these and thous and thines and withereths and thitherists and all of those kinds of words, it can be confusing for somebody that's not familiar with all of that. I grew up on the King James Version of the Bible, and I think it's a good translation uh, for the most part. But in recent years, I have grown much fonder of the English Standard Version. That's what I preach from regularly. The New American Standard, I even use the NIV sometimes in Bible class. This question, though, is not about the use of the King James Bible translation. This question, though, has to do with the King James English seeping its way into the hymns that we sing. And what kinds of songs am I talking about? Well, there's lots of them. I'm thinking about songs like, How Great Thou Art, or We Saw Thee Not, When Thou Didst Come. Or even that song that we just sang a few moments ago, Lord, we come before Thee now, at Thy feet we humbly bow. We've got lots of songs that uses that kind of language. And the reason for that is, is because we have a lot of songs in our hymnals that were written 200, 300, 400 years ago when the King's English was the normal language of the time. And so the question is, should we still be singing those songs? Well, I want to submit to you tonight that the test of whether or not a hymn is something that we ought to be singing, the test is not whether or not that song, well, when was it written? When was it written in the last 100 years or was it written 500 years ago? Because that's going to determine whether we sing it. And the test is not, does it use ye olden English or does it use new modern English, the kind that we speak today? That's not the test that we ought to be using. The test for hymns, I want to suggest, really ought to be threefold. First of all, we need to ask, is this song biblical? Does it express the truth of Scripture? What Jesus say in John 4 verse 24? Jesus said that He's seeking worshipers, God is seeking worshipers, and He wants that worship to be done in spirit and in truth. That is, according to His Word. So when I'm looking at a song, I need to ask, does this hymn, does it harmonize with the teaching of the Bible? That, I think, is the number one criteria. Secondly, I need to ask, is this song understandable? That's really important. In 1 Corinthians 14 and in verse 15, and actually this is the verse that we kind of use as the basis for doing those hymn studies each month, Paul says there in 1 Corinthians 14, 15, that we are to sing with the Spirit, but that we are also to sing with the understanding also. You know, if I'm looking at a song and I'm singing this song and I can't even understand what this is about, then one of a couple things needs to happen. Either A... I need to figure out what it's about so I can understand what I'm singing. Or B, even if I've studied and I've tried to understand it and I still don't, then I probably don't need to be singing that song. It's just not going to do me any good. It's just, I'll just be, you know, the, the clanging symbol. It's just not going to be beneficial at all. So I think a second good criteria is, is this song understandable? And then thirdly, we need to ask, is this song singable? You know, I'll be honest with you. I am more concerned 
about the singability of some of our more modern hymns where you've got the bassist singing this over here and the alto singing this over here and the tenor singing these words up here and the... Who's left? I left somebody out. The soprano, they're singing some other set of words over here. And when you look at it on the page, it looks almost like a treasure map because everything's just going in every which way. I must tell you, I'm more concerned about the singability of those songs than I am with the singability of a t- couple of you know older songs that maybe have a few these and thous and thines in it. Paul said in 1 Corinthians 14, he dropped on down to verse 40 of that chapter, he said, all things in our worship, in our assemblies, they need to be done decently and in order. All things need to be done for building up. And that includes having songs that everybody is able to join in and sing. And so I'll just say that if we're going to start judging hymns, and that's not a bad thing, we ought to do that. We ought to scrutinize the songs that we're singing. We need to make sure that we're using the right set of criteria. Now I would say as well, as I think about this King's English argument about the songs, I'm not entirely sure that I'm really all that comfortable with ditching or even updating some of those old King Jamesian hymns. Simply because, well, we just don't talk that way anymore, so we shouldn't sing like that. Honestly now, let me ask you, is anybody here going to cast a vote to trade how great thou art for how great you are. You want to sing that song? I don't want to sing that song. I want to sing that original. How great thou art. There's something powerful about that. Now, what lots of more mainstream churches, lots of denominational churches, what they have decided to do, kind of in an effort to accommodate all schools of thought on this, in order to accommodate everybody's preferences is, is what we're going to do is we're going to divide up our worship assemblies, which in a sense is really dividing up the church, if you will. And what we'll do is we'll offer at least a couple of different worship offerings. We'll offer the traditional service. And that's usually catered toward the older crowd. Those who like those old King James type songs. Then we're going to offer as well a contemporary service. And that's going to probably cater maybe more to the younger crowd. We're going to sing a lot of those newer songs that have actually been written during the past century. And it's always kind of a, you know, it's an either this or that. It's a take your pick. you got to either have this or you got to have that. And I thought it was interesting that this morning Josh led all songs from the supplement, which would be kind of considered the newer contemporary songs. And tonight Luke's singing all songs from the big book, which would be considered kind of the older sort of songs. Yet, we've had everybody here for both of those services. But the question comes, is it this or is it that? Which one is the right way? Well, can I suggest to you tonight that it does not have to be an either-or situation? That we can worship God with older hymns and newer hymns? Look with me in Ezra chapter 3. I think this is a very useful passage for us to think about, not just in this connection but really in a lot of different things that we maybe have difference of preference on when it comes to worship practices. In Ezra chapter 3, this is during the time when the temple in Jerusalem is being rebuilt. It's during the days of Ezra. And I want you to notice that as the foundations for the temple are being laid, there are two very different, very kind of at opposite ends, two very different responses to what happened there that day. In Ezra chapter 3, look with me beginning in verse 10. That when the builders laid the foundation of the temple of the Lord, the priests in their vestments came forward with trumpets, and the Levites, the son of Asaph, with cymbals to praise the Lord according to the directions of David, the king of Israel. 
And they sang responsively, praising and giving thanks to the Lord. For He is good, for His steadfast love endures forever toward Israel. And all the people shouted with a great shout when they praised the Lord, because the foundation of the house of the Lord was laid. Verse 12 now. But many of the priests and the Levites and the heads of the fathers' houses, the old men who had seen the first house, the first temple, they wept. They wept with a loud voice when they saw the foundation of this house being laid, though many also shouted aloud for joy, so that the people could not distinguish the sound of the joyful shout from the sound of the people's weeping. For the people shouted with a great shout. The sound was heard far away. Question. When the foundations of the temple were being laid on that day, which response was the right response? Was the right response to... Praise and shout adoration to God and praise Him for all of His goodness as it seems like some of the younger generations did? Or was the right response that of the older generation who wept and cried out loud? Which one of those two responses was right? Both of them were right. Neither of them was wrong. And in fact, there had to be an allowance for both of those kinds of responses, for that's what the occasion called for. There was an occasion there for shouting and rejoicing. And there was also an occasion there for some weeping and some mourning, which means that even though we may have differences of opinions or we may have different responses to the songs that we sing in our worship today, none of us has any right to demand one side, it's got to be this side, to the exclusion of the other. And so, my answer to this second question, in a word, is yes. We can sing those songs that have old King James English. In fact, I'd say we should sing a lot of those songs. They express great biblical truths and they call our heart to the Lord and bring us there before the throne room of God. In fact, I'll just tell you personally, I think I'd be upset If we didn't sing some of those songs, I love number 375, The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. One of Tiffany's favorite songs is number 420, O Thou Fount of Every Blessing. Those songs are filled with all of that old King James type language. And what we need to see from all of this is we need to see that there is room in worship, even for the King's English in 2018. Finally then this evening, continuing to speak about hymns, Let's talk about a specific hymn that we sing from time to time here at Lakeside. It's on the inside back cover of the supplement, number 152. It's that song, In Christ Alone. And the question about this song has to do with the last line, the last verse of that song. And the question is this, is it scriptural for us to sing that line that says, No power of hell, no scheme of man can ever pluck me from his hand? That's a good question. It's going to give me just a moment to say a few things about the subject of security. There are religious groups in the world today, groups that would call themselves Christian. There are religious groups that teach that it is possible for a Christian to sin and not be lost. Maybe the better way to say that, that there are groups that teach that it is impossible for a Christian to sin so much that they would be lost and lose their salvation. That is a basic tenet of the doctrine called Calvinism. And maybe kind of the more basic phraseology of that is the idea of once saved, always saved. And really that's what this questioner is wanting to know. Hey, is that teaching once saved, always saved? 
Is this song somehow teaching that there is nothing that you could ever do that would cause you to lose or to forfeit your salvation? Well, before I answer about this song, I want you to know this evening, without any equivocation, that a Christian absolutely can sin in such a way so as to be lost eternally. That you can forfeit your salvation. I'll show you that. Look in Galatians chapter 5. In Galatians chapter 5, this is just one place, but it's an easy place to do it. In Galatians chapter 5, as Paul addresses the Christians there in Galatia, he says in verse number 1, in Galatians 5 verse 1, he says, For freedom Christ has set us free. Stand firm therefore and do not submit again to a yoke of slavery. Paul's, there's no doubt about it. Paul is talking to Christians here. People who have been set free. Look at the warning that he gives them now in verse 4. In verse 4 he says, You are severed from Christ. Who? You who would be justified by the law. You have fallen away from grace. The answer to that age-old question, Can a Christian fall from grace? According to the Apostle Paul, the answer is... Yes, you can. You can lose your salvation. That issue is settled here in Galatians 5 and in a host of other passages. Why, just stop and think about all of the verses in the New Testament that really would be rendered null and void if you were just once saved, always saved. Think about all the admonitions to remain steadfast. 1 Corinthians 15, 58. Think about those admonitions to run with endurance all the way to the end. Hebrews chapter 12 verse 1. Think about those verses that talk about being faithful to the Lord until death. Revelation 2 verse 10. Why would the Lord give all of those admonitions to Christians if it was impossible for them to lose their salvation? You see, there's just lots of verses that would be absolutely irrelevant if you could never ever fall from grace. And so, let's just get this absolutely straight. I want to be 100% crystal clear on this. You can decide to sin and be lost. You can do that. You can decide to turn away from Jesus and forfeit your salvation. You can decide, you know what, I don't want to do this anymore. I don't want to be a part of the church anymore. I don't want to do this worship stuff anymore. I don't want to you know, live for Jesus anymore. I'm not going to do it anymore. I'm just going to go to hell. And guess what? You will. You will get your wish. However, having made that crystal clear, you and I also need to understand that salvation, it cannot, I repeat, it cannot be taken away from you. That the devil cannot steal away your salvation in Jesus Christ and do that against your will. In fact, Jesus Himself says so. Look in John chapter 10. In John chapter 10, this is actually the passage that provides the basis for that hymn in Christ alone. In John chapter 10, look with me in verse 27. Jesus here in John chapter 10, beginning in verse 27, He says, My sheep hear My voice, and I know them, and they follow Me. I give them eternal life, and they will never perish. And no one, no one will snatch them out of My hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. 
If I could just borrow that line from that song, no power of hell, no scheme of man can pluck you from the Father's hand if you don't want that to happen. Jesus says that the Father, He is greater. He is higher and more powerful than any kind of power that Satan and all of his unholy angels and demons, any power that they might wield. Satan cannot pry you away from the Father's hand if you don't want to leave. In fact, Paul echoes that point powerfully in Romans chapter 8, one final passage this evening. In Romans chapter 8, Paul says, Nothing, no one has the power to snatch you away from the Father's loving care. In Romans 8, in what is, I think is just one of the greatest climaxes to any chapter in the Bible, so many great things that kind of build up to the things that Paul says here in these concluding verses. In Romans chapter 8, he writes beginning in verse 34, he says, Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. Verse 35, Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation, or distress, or persecution, or famine, or nakedness, or danger, or sore, or any of those other things that the devil might do? As it is written, for your sake we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. The answer to all these questions, verse 37, No. In all these things we are more than conquerors through Him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all of creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. The devil cannot take you away from Jesus. The devil cannot haul you off kicking and screaming. You're saying, no, 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 I don't want to go. The devil can't do that. The devil will never do that. The devil is not able to do that. No power of hell, no scheme of man can ever pluck me from his hand. So the question is, can we sing that song and can we sing that line to that song? Absolutely. I think that's one of the greatest things that we can sing and celebrate in song. Because what that line celebrates is it celebrates not a false doctrine about security, but a right and true doctrine about security. That we are guarded and protected by Jesus Christ. If you want to go to heaven, the Bible says you can go to heaven. And the devil can't take that away from you against your will. And you know what? That seems like a good conclusion and it seems like a good way to extend the invitation of Jesus the Christ. If you are here this evening, and you are outside of Christ, if you have never responded to the gospel call in obedience, submitting in faith, and it is an act of faith, a faith that will confess Jesus as the Son of God, a faith that will repent and turn away from sin and turn to the Lord, and a faith that will submit yourself to the waters of baptism so that all your past sins can be washed away. If you're willing to do that tonight, we're ready to help you. You can become a Christian this very evening. You can begin knowing that wonderful protection that Jesus provides for His people, for people who want to do what's right and people who want to go to heaven. If you are a Christian, let me say this, brother or sister. Can you sing the words to that song if you're not living faithfully for the Lord and you know it? I mean, think about that. Can you really sing those words? Oh, no power of hell. No scheme of man can ever pluck me from his hand. That's true. But if you are willingly giving yourself over to the devil on a silver platter, ah, 
It's just something wrong with you being able to sing those words with integrity in your heart. If you're away from the Lord, you need to come back. He is beckoning you and calling you to come back to Him. Come back to His care and His protection so that you can be in the Father's house, be in the Father's house for all of eternity. If there's anybody here this evening who's subject to the invitation, we implore you through the words of this great song, why don't you open up your hearts and open up your minds and open up action and respond to the gospel right now. Do that while we stand and while we sing.